Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Open up to Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Daniel chapter 5. So we are five weeks into this series that I'm calling Counterculture. We're looking at the life of Daniel as he's been carried away into captivity. And how do you navigate in, in a culture? How do you remain true to God in a culture that is totally against God? And so how relevant is that for us today? And it's been an awesome five weeks so far. I hope you guys are enjoying the study. I know that I'm thoroughly enjoying the study. It's, it's you know, the theme that the Lord continues to reveal to me in particular, and as I continue to share with you, the sovereignty of God. The fact that God's in control of everything. And that is the overarching theme of the book of Daniel, that God is in control. Now remember, there were two truths that I told you about last week, and they run through the Bible, and they certainly are present in the book of Daniel. Remember remember truth number one? That there is only one God. Right? And then truth number two is related to that, you're not him. So uh, that's, that's the book of Daniel, and that is the entire Bible in a nutshell. There is only one God, and you're not him. And so our lives should be all about trying to seek and serve the one and true living God. And we see Daniel do a marvelous job through the years of captivity for him and, and those that were with him there. Um, as we move into this study this morning, it's a popular phrase you've, you've heard of. Maybe you've even said yourself. It is, the writing is on the wall. The writing is on the wall. You ever heard that saying before or ever said that saying before? You know, it, it's, a, it's a saying that literally means that there is impending doom coming. Something's coming, like some sort of, there's bad Bad uh, news on the horizon, so to speak. You know, there's something that's about to happen, and it's not necessarily a good thing. You, you hear people say that when they look at a business that isn't doing well. They say, man, the writing's on the wall, meaning that business isn't going to succeed. Or maybe it's about their job. Say, man, my, my boss doesn't like me. I, I can feel the tension there. I, I know he's documenting things that I'm doing wrong. Listen, if that's what's happening in your job right now, the writing is on the wall. Like your boss is documenting stuff so he can can you. So, you know, th- that's what that phrase means. It's interesting that that phrase doesn't come from some proverb in China or, you know, some proverb in, in the world. It actually comes from the Bible. It comes from Daniel chapter 5. And that is where we find ourselves this morning, Daniel chapter 5, where we find the writing on the wall. And it is a literal writing on the wall. Now, before we get into our text, I want to give you a little bit of background so you understand what, where we are in terms of timing as it relates to the book of Daniel right now. Daniel, um, you know, he went into captivity at 14 years old. He is now, as we enter into Daniel chapter 5, about 80 years old. So it's about 80 years old. It's been about 66 years of captivity in, uh, in, in Daniel. So Daniel served all the way through the, 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 the headship of Nebuchadnezzar, and he succeeded. Nebuchadnezzar had died, and, and the, the, the throne continued to be passed around a little bit. But Daniel was still present in Babylon 66 years or so. It's been going on. And God is about ready to move and remove his children from captivity and bring them back to Jerusalem to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, as he said he was going to do. Seventy years was the prophecy that they would be in captivity, and and that time frame is about up. So just so you understand the time frame of what's going on there, again, Nebuchadnezzar's dead. He died in five. uh, 562 BC, his son Evil Murdoch took over the reign. He was killed by his brother-in-law, uh, Neroglycerer, in 560 BC. Uh, Neroglycerer reigned in Babylon for four years. He died of natural causes. His son took over the reign when he was just a child. He was put on the throne. He only lasted for nine months before his uncle killed him and took over the reign. This is a scandalous, you know, power-hungry, bloodthirsty culture. That's, that's, you, you need to understand the culture that's going on there. They are fierce when it comes to rulership. People want power, and they'll do whatever they um, have to to get it. And so at this point in time, uh, there is a man named Nebadinus on the throne 
Nebuchadnezzar, and he, he, is, he is kind of an interesting character because he is the king of Babylon, but he doesn't want to be the acting king. So essentially what he's, he's done is he's placed his son in charge of Babylon because he wanted to seek the kingdom of Babylon. He wanted to travel around the empire of Babylon. He didn't want the responsibilities of being the king and ruling and reigning in Babylon. So he said, I'm going to put you in charge. So understand this. Belshazzar, the character that we hear in the, in the, in the text this morning, is second in command, although he is the king of Babylon by right of his father. His father was, was alive. Some believe during this time that maybe his father has actually been taken captive by the Medes and Persians. Um, don't know what's going on exactly there, but what we know is his dad gave him the reign. He is reigning and ruling in Babylon. That helps you to understand the historical context of what's going on. Now, let's get into this whole writing on the wall business. Uh, and the first thing that we're going to find in our text is the party that produces the writing on the wall. Stand with me, and let's read Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessel of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning and... God, we just want to humble ourselves before you. We recognize that you are the one and true living God. That we hide nothing from before you. You, you see all things, Lord. We are bare and naked before you. And so we ask you this morning, Lord, to reach into the places of our heart that we need to hear from you. The areas of our lives, Lord, that we are struggling in. Father, the discouragement that we have. Lord, the shackles that we are wearing. Maybe even the willful disobedience in our hearts this morning. Will you speak to us? Lord, will you awaken the mind of the natural man this morning? If there are any people here this morning that don't know you, will you by your spirit awaken Bring life to them this morning, Lord. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that your word is active and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so we have all the things present here today for massive change in our life. Now the only other element is our surrender to you. And so we surrender now, Lord. Have your way in us as we go through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The first thing that you notice in our text this morning is the party that produces the writing on the wall. In Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we see the king is partying and carrying on like he has no care in the world. But that isn't reality. That is not reality. You might know this, but you, you may not know this either, but Belshazzar does have some massive cares going on right now. And in fact, so massive that he's about to be overtaken. The Medes and the Persians are parked right outside the city walls of Babylon at this point in time. The entire Babylonian empire has been conquered. The only thing left is Babylon, the city. And here we have a king throwing a party. We have a king that is that's partying like he's going out of style, man. He, 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 he doesn't have a care in the world. You know what he has? Belshazzar has a false sense of security. He has a false sense of security because he's living behind walls that he thinks that can protect him. They are 90 feet tall. They're 22 feet wide. They, they had chariot races around the top of these walls because they were so wide. There were towers on those walls that ranged some 300 feet in the air. This is a massive city behind massive walls. Not only that, 
But this city had food storage and water supply to last them for 20 years. Here we have a king that knows that he's, he, his whole entire kingdom has been conquered, but he's sitting behind these walls feeling like he is secure and nothing's going to happen to him. He has way more cares in his life than he cares to think about. How interesting it is that that is the case in our world today where people have false security in, in different things. They're placing their security maybe in a bank account. They're placing their security maybe in a job, maybe in a relationship. They're, they're, they have a false sense of security. And let me tell you something. Everything in the world will fail you. Everything in the world will fail you. There is only one security in this life, and his name is Jesus Christ. You have, if your security is found in anything else, folks, I don't care what it is. Maybe it's in your health. Maybe it's in a doctor. Maybe it's in whatever it is. You have a false sense of security. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Some people here, maybe you're young. When I was young, I never considered, oh, I, I knew that death would come, but not for me. Of course, I'm young. I'm invincible. Listen, don't hide behind your youth. That is, that you're not invincible. And listen, the day will come, and you don't know the day or the hour. No one knows the day or the hour. The only security that we have in this life is Jesus Christ. He is the only security we have. God has long been telling the, the people of Babylon that this day is coming. Like he, he, he told Nebuchadnezzar, we see in, in the very um, second chapter of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar has that dream, you remember? Statue, this dream, head of gold, and these various different colors representing the, the de various different empires that are going to take over. And of course, there's going to be a time lag. 66 years for, for Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The 66 years is up. Listen, everybody in the kingdom heard about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and yet you have this arrogant, pompous, second in charge, flexing a little bit of power, thinking that he has nothing to be concerned about, hiding behind a false sense of security while the enemy is on the other side. The very people that God told them was going to overtake the Babylonian kingdom. Foolishness. Foolishness. And yet, we do that ourselves at times. We, we hide behind foolish things, thinking that we can find security in those things. Jesus is the only thing that we can find security. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 23 says, No one who denies the Son ha has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. That's the security you can have in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the security that you can have in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said himself in John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, he said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Listen, I and the Father are one. We have incredible, great security in this life and the life to come through the person of Jesus Christ, nothing else. I think of, as I was studying, I thought about Steve Jobs. I thought about the man that had pretty much everything that you could have in life. His net worth was $10 billion when he died. $10 billion. Listen, he, could have, he had the, the finances to, to buy whatever he wanted, whatever kind of security he thought he could get, he could buy. He, he had the money to buy the, 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 the best care for the pancreatic cancer that he had. He had, he had what the world would consider everything he needed to, 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 be, to, to be secure, and yet he was not secure at all, folks. It was all false security. He, he even ate a vegetarian diet, fruititarian. You know, he, 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 for, for most of his life, he, he fasted multiple times a day. For all intensive purposes, we would say, man, this guy has nothing to worry about. And yet he got pancreatic cancer at like 48 years old, and he died at 56. I don't care what you have, folks. You do not have, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And the world doesn't have the resources for the things that are, will pass us into eternity. The only security we have is Jesus Christ. Belshazzar, he's foolish in his thinking, thinking that he would escape the prophetic word of God. Listen, the writing was on the wall already. The Lord had already spoken what was going to happen here. 
Here the king makes, he, while, notice it says here, while he was drinking, while Nebuchadnezzar was drinking, we, we want, I want you to understand what this is saying. This is saying while he was drunk, Nebuchadnezzar was drunk at this point, and I don't know about you, but I've never made a great decision, you know, when I was under the influence of alcohol. I don't know about you, but I don't think anybody could ever say, man, I make the best decisions of my life wasted. I mean, I, have, I, have, I need to go get some alcohol today because I make really good decisions when I am wasted. In fact, you know what you do? Still kill and destroy. That's what alcohol will do. Still kill and destroy. Listen, listen to me very carefully. Alcohol is not a sin. The excess of alcohol is a sin. It's not, it's not that it's not okay to have a beer or drink or whatever, but the excess of alcohol that in, to the point of inebriation where your judgment is is fuzzy and you can't make good decisions. That's the sin. The Bible tells us, give strong drink to him who is perishing. But for you and I, the saints of God, we need all of our faculties all the time. We need to be on point. We need to be in season and out of season. We need to be ready for the call of God on our life because we don't know what the Lord will do. Listen, he could knock on your door tomorrow. Somebody could show up and say, I need Jesus. How do I do it? If you're messed up, how are you going to give him Jesus? We need to be sober. We need to be vigilant. We need to be warriors ready at all times. Here, here Belshazzar, he's, he's wasted, and he makes a foolish mistake. In fact, no king would ever do this, but in the arrogance and pompness of Belshazzar, he calls for the vessels of the temple of God from Jerusalem. Are you kidding me? His dad was humbled, or his grandpa was humbled incredibly by this God, and he's so arrogant that he would call out the vessels, the vessels that were meant for worship, the, me the vessels that were meant for honoring the Lord. Listen, I'm telling you, you look back in the Old Testament, God, th there were people stoned for far less than this. People lost their lives for far less than bringing the vessels of the temple before this party, and they began to drink out of them, and then they began to worship their own gods. The, the, the point of it, it was that Belshazzar was mocking the God of heaven. Belshazzar was mocking the God of heaven, and we look around and we see the mockery in our world today, see the mockery of God. There's no fear of God in our world today. Listen, that will not go on forever, folks. That will not go on forever. God is, at some point, he's going to pull the, 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 the rug out from under the mockers. And one day, he is going to engage. The, these people, they, they, they began to drink in the vessels that were meant for the Lord. They began to engage in an orgy-style worship before their false gods. And the Lord says, enough is enough. It's time for me to act. And he shows up in a big way in a very fearful way before these people. Look at verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of, the, of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it, was, as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the, the uh, enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, and they, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. I have to admit that I have never had a human hand appear before me in the midst of my sin, but I have been humbled by God in the midst of my sin. The Lord will not be mocked, folks. Listen, he, he, he's a holy God. He's a just God. And if you belong to him, listen to me. He's not going to be mocked. He, he, he's going to show up, not because he wants to um, flex his power before you, but because he loves you. And he knows sin destroys and he knows that you're an ambassador of Christ, and so he's going to show up. He's going to humble you a little bit. He's going to maybe have to do it publicly. Listen, our secret sin is open scandal in heaven. I don't know if you know that, but God sees everything. 
You can't hide anything from him. And he is going to reach you in whatever means that he has to. And it's not to say that it's to scare you, it's to warn you because God loves you that much. He's going to do that. Here we find that, that the, the, the reason God is showing up in this moment is, is not necessarily because of the sin that is happening right now, but it's because what has already happened. He's already, this has already transpired. The Lord has already written this. This has already been, been set. He already knew that Belshazzar would be the, even more proud, more prideful than Nebuchadnezzar himself. He already knew all of that was going to happen, and he knew the exact timing of when the Medes and Persians were going to be outside the city gates, and he orchestrated all of that so that he could reveal himself in a massive way to King Belshazzar right before he fell. Notice it says that the, the color went out from him. I, I presume he turned white. I presume that all the blood just faded away from his face and he became scared like he had seen a ghost. It says that his thoughts began to race, his knees began to quake, his limbs became limp. He was scared out of his mind. Here this once jolly old fellow wasted having a good time with his buddies is sobered instantly. You ever seen the Lord do that before? You ever seen somebody, God, sober somebody up very quickly by his word? It's funny how when we're in the midst of sin, we avoid his word because we know the power of God's word. One time my wife and I were, uh, we were street witnessing and we were in a, in a neighborhood and th there was these two young guys. It was probably like two o'clock in the day. These two young guys are probably, I don't know, in their early 20s or something. They're both wasted. They're both wasted and, you know, <sighs> I, I think probably some of us would have just walked by and said, oh, this, they're not worth even talking to. Don't throw your pearls before swine. But for whatever reason, the Spirit of God told us to go minister to them. And we started to talk to them. And I watched them. I'm not kidding you. Sober up right before my eyes. As we begin to share the love of Christ with these guys, tell them, listen, you don't have to have these kind of substances to make you feel like you're valued or make you feel like you have a worth or make you, you know, forget the pain that you're dealing with. There's a God in heaven who loves you. There's a God in heaven who can heal you. You just turn your life over to him and you let him do that. And we watch these guys sober up in an instant and all their faculties come about and they're one of the kids even, even said, you know, I, I was raised in a Christian home, and I just have been, I've strayed away, man. And, and you know, the Lord is just, he, he, can, he can sober us up, and he can get right through to us. And, and it's just amazing to see that. That's exactly what's happening here. Here's the interesting thing about that. The reason God does that, folks, is because he wants to reach us. He wants to reach us. When Judas came to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus knew he was the son of perdition. He didn't, but Jesus did. And it's interesting as Jesus, the words that Jesus says to him in that moment, friend, why have you come? Jesus knew exactly why he came. Why did he say it like that? What was he saying? To me, he's extending the hand of grace one more time. Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure, Judas? The Lord, I believe, because he's so gracious, He's even in his anger when he's burning with wrath. He is a God of mercy and a God of grace. And I believe that he's speaking into Belshazzar's life right now, just saying, wake up, dude. I, I, wake up. Stop being who you are. Is that going to stop all the things that are going on? It may not. Listen, when you come to Christ, it doesn't mean all your problems go away. But listen, you have a security that's real. The Lord is trying to reach Belshazzar, perhaps, and, and yet he's, he's unwilling. He, de he sobers up right in that moment, and, and the Lord, and, and yet he, still, he, he immediately cries out. Isn't that interesting? He gets scared, and what does he do? He cries out for understanding. He wants to know what in the world is going on in my life. So what does he do? He calls the wise men. Of course, that's, that's the next step. Isn't it interesting that every time the wise men are called by the king, that Daniel's not there. He's one of the wise men. In fact, he's one of the most prominent wise men in the kingdom. Why isn't he there? Why doesn't he show up? I believe God purposely orchestrates this so that the world can pursue every end before the Lord brings a spiritual solution to the table. You want to try and do it your way? Go for it. It will never work out for you. And so Belshazzar, he cries out to the world looking for answers that they cannot give him. 
And so these guys come in and they can't give him the answer. And he literally becomes even further white, more scared, quaking in his boots. And someone goes and grabs his grandma, probably asleep, thinking like, what is he doing? Someone runs into the queen's, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's wife and says, listen, your grandson, he is freaking out right now. The lords in this, in this, this banquet hall are freaking out. You need to come talk some sense into this guy. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall the banking hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom uh, is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Because an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. And so, you know, somehow she got wind of what was going on there, whether someone ran and told her what was going on or whatever, and she reminds, she, she reminds the king. I believe she informs the king that there's somebody in his kingdom that was, is able to bring clarity in these moments because he has the spirit of the gods within him. Those are, that's the same phraseology that Nebuchadnezzar used until we get to chapter 4 when he's humbled by God and then he finally recognizes, God, you were the most high God. There is only one God and I'm not him. He, he recognizes the two truths of, of the Bible and so what's interesting here is the queen, she utilizes Daniel's name. Notice she said Daniel. Daniel is, is his Hebrew name. And, and remember in chapter 1, they wanted to scrub the Hebrew right out of these boys. They wanted them to become Babylonians. And yet she refers to him as his Hebrew name, Daniel. Even though Nebuchadnezzar named him Belshazzar, she continues to call him Daniel. How interesting. Verse 13, Daniel was called, it says then, was, Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can in, uh, give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a, gold of chain, uh, have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." And so, isn't it interesting, when, when Daniel shows up on the scene, this guy has no clue who he is. Like, how do you not have a clue who, the, the, the person that was put in the second in command by Nebuchadnezzar, how do you not have a clue who he is? You're the king of this ruler, of this, of this place, and you have no clue who this guy is. Like, he's the most valuable asset in, in all of the wise men, and you have no idea. You've just been informed by the queen who he is. There's a disconnect in the leadership in Babylon and, and, and the, the, the wise men in Babylon. This guy wasn't seeking gods. He's afraid. And like most people, when they're afraid, they, they, they reach out. They try and talk to anybody that has any spiritual sense because they're afraid. That don't, don't mix that up with genuine and true repentance, folks. Listen, there is a fear that will lead to a false sense of repentance where you say, I'm so scared that I'm going to repent because I know that I'm going to die one day, but you never genuinely turn your heart over to the Lord. There is worldly sorrow that, that, that does not lead to repentance, and then there is godly sorrow that does lead to repentance. You see here, the king, he has not got godly sorrow that leads to repentance. He has a worldly sorrow. He's sorry for what he's done, perhaps, but he's not sorry uh, for, for, you know, he's not turning his life over to this God. He's seeking answers. He wants to understand what's going on here. 
but he has no interest in really seeking the Lord. He has not been seeking ultimately any kind of spiritual guidance whatsoever until this moment, and that is most people. Let me tell you, man, God's after you. God's after you. He loves each and every one of us so much that he, he goes and pursues us. He is the hound of heaven. He pursues each one of us individually all the days of our life. He loves us so much, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that, you know, the Lord humbled me enough at 24 that I came to know the Lord because I was on a path that led to destruction and it was wide. And there's many people that are still on that same path, but the Lord is reaching in. He wants to save and and he can save if we'll bow our knee to him. This guy has no idea who, who Daniel is. You, you would think that, you know, he, 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 had, he had heard the story of Nebuchadnezzar and all the things that were going on. And the fact you, you don't live in this culture and not hear about the king who became an animal for seven years and, you know, ate the grass of the field and stayed out there. You don't, you, you hear about that kind of stuff. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar himself made it a mandate in Daniel chapter four. Those are his words. That was his letter that went out to the kingdom. And he said, I need to tell you my testimony. And so that's exactly what he did. Everybody knew. And yet, just because you have the information doesn't mean you'll humble your heart. That's what we find here. He had heard that Daniel had the spirit of the gods within him. And so it's interesting. Listen to Daniel's response to all of this. He said, I'll, I'll give you the third of the kingdom and I'll, I'll, I'll properly honor you, Daniel, even though you've been used mightily already. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read uh, the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that uh, he dealt proudly He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Verse 22 And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Listen, though you knew all this, but you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose, whose are all your ways you have not honored. It's interesting, the comparison, the response of Daniel when we come to Daniel chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar tells him his dream, and then we see his response here when uh, Belshazzar tells him his dream. When Nebuchadnezzar told the dream to Daniel, Daniel was literally dismayed. He was was afraid for Nebuchadnezzar. Like he saw the vision that God had given him through the dream and he said, dude, you're gonna go insane and you're gonna act like an ox for a period, for seven years. And, And Daniel is bewildered in that moment. Like he doesn't really want to tell Nebuchadnezzar what's coming for him. He cares for him. He deeply cares for Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, he's, he, he's, he's concerned for him, and he's, and he's, he's a little perplexed by the, the things that the Lord is sharing with him. But here, here it's a total different story. You, you know the difference? There's no relationship. There's no relationship whatsoever with Belshazzar, but there is a relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. Relationship matters, folks. 
There are people in your lives that if you, not that God has to use relationship, but God oftentimes uses relationship as a way to break down walls with people for you to share the truth with them. Oftentimes people won't, won't hear the truth um, from, from people that they have no relationship with, they, you know, and, and oftentimes they won't hear the truth from the people that they have the greatest relationship with, you know, parents to children or, or siblings to each other or whatnot, or spouse to spouse kind of situation. But the Lord uses relationships. Daniel had a relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. I know my wife uses my relationship with her all the time. She always is telling me things about what I'm not doing right. No, I'm just kidding. She doesn't. But that, that's probably more me, but I, you know. But anyway, Daniel, he, he doesn't have a relationship with Belshazzar, nor is he incredibly impressed with what he's being offered. You know, he's not, he's not Gehazi in the Old Testament that's going to run after the gold. He's not, he's not somebody that's going to take the gold and, and be, be flattered with all the power and, and the things that he can gain by helping the king out. He could care less about these things. He knows that God wants to speak, and so he's going to speak. He's going to tell him exactly what's going to happen here, and, and he starts with a little story. I love that about the Lord, that he, he brings to remembrance the things that he already knew. Isn't that how the Lord works in your life? Like he, he brings to remembrance the knowledge that you have. I said this last week, and I'll say it again, but you're accountable for what you know. Like, you, you, you're not going to go before the Lord and just say, oh, I didn't know. Yet he knows what you know, and you're accountable to him for what you know. So if you're not living out your life based on the knowledge that you have, you're accountable for that. It's in a different kind of accountability. You know, now for the believer, let's talk about that for a second. What does the judgment for a believer look like versus the judgment for an unbeliever? Of course, the judgment for a believer is totally different. The, the wrath of God has been satisfied on the cross. We have victory in Christ in our life here. You know, that our sins have been paid for. We're not, God isn't bringing down wrath and a judgment for us. The Bema Seat judgment for believers is totally different than the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. The Bema Seat judgment is more of a, the Lord saying, what did you do with my son after you came to know him? What, how did you apply the knowledge that you had? And, you know, he puts all of your works into this furnace, and, and he burns away the wood, hay, and stubble, and the only thing that remains is what was pure for him, the things that you did for the Lord. All based on your knowledge, all based on what you know, and, the thing, and how faithful you were to God. But for the unbeliever, it's a totally different judgment. Here, the judgment of the unbeliever they are accountable for what they know. How many ever times they heard the gospel? How much clarity they had about the gospel? Were they raised in a situation where the, the gospel went forward all the time? Their parents poured into them, but they never became believers. You're accountable for what you know. And that accountability will follow you into eternity, for all of eternity, as the Lord judges you in the great white throne judgment. And it is eternal damnation forever. And it's not a place that anybody should, should want to be. And the Lord is trying to save people from that judgment. Belshazzar knew about this God in heaven, and yet he called for the vessels anyway. He called for the vessels anyway. Sometimes we know what the Lord wants us to do. We don't do it because it doesn't fit our agenda. He knew about the Lord. He knew about God, and yet he didn't do what he was supposed to do here. He, didn't, he, he should have just left those things alone, but he wanted to mock God. So Daniel tells him, listen, you're, you're far more prideful than Nebuchadnezzar was, and this is what happened to him, and he was humbled big time. Notice it says in verse 22, um, you have not humbled your heart, although you knew this, but you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. He, he, he was exalting himself in that moment. And the Lord says, you know, hey, you want to be exalted, be humble. You want to be humbled? exalt yourself. That's the way it works. It's the way it works. It's interesting here also that, um, that although Belshazzar does not know the God of heaven, he doesn't understand who he is fully, Daniel tells him something very key here. He says, this is the God in whose hand is your breath. 
He's not his God, and yet he is the God of all. He is almighty. He's 100% in control. Every life will give an account to him. He holds your breath in his hand because the breath of life came from him. All life comes from God, and all life is in his hand, and he can do what he wants with it. But Daniel is telling Belshazzar, this is the God who holds your breath in his hand and, and whose are all your ways whom you've not honored. Belshazzar was mocking the Lord. <clears throat> Interesting enough as well that I want to bring up here is that although Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel did not have a relationship with Belshazzar, um, there, there seems to be, and, and, and I would say that there is to a large degree, this, this kind of theme going on in our world today, and there is a disconnect with the older generation to the younger generation. There's a disconnect with that. You know, the Bible says that older believers should be discipling younger believers. The older men should be discipling the younger men. The older women should be discipling the younger women. And, and it would seem to be in this case that the older, um, you know, wise men of Babylon had been put out to pasture. He didn't even understand who Daniel was. He had no idea who Daniel was. And yet, when you look at God's economy, the way that it works is as we mature in the Lord, we're supposed to turn around and pour out what we know into the life of younger people in our lives. I want to tell you older folks that, you know what, we, you know, I, I'm an older folks myself, but, you know, the, the younger generation needs us, guys. They, they need all of you. Don't, don't think for a second that you're, you know, that you're just out to pasture and you're just waiting for the Lord to come. He has work for you to do, you know, and it's a biblical thing for you to pour into the younger generation. You should be looking for those younger people to bring, to come alongside and to pour into them. They need your wisdom. Listen, they may not listen to you. That's okay. I, I've counseled lots of people that don't listen to me, but you know, who cares? Who am I? It's the word of God that matters. And, and it's the counsel of the word of God. It's the practical working out of the word of God in your life. And you have a lot of life experience that people can learn from. Listen, don't think that as you age that God's done with you. He's not done with you. He, in fact, he desperately wants to use you in a generation that has no clue whatsoever about anything, really. I mean, there is a generation growing up that does not understand, you know, the world that you lived in, the world that you grew up in, the things that, you know, you went through with your generation and, and all of these kinds of things. There's a massive disconnect, and it is by the enemy's purpose, I believe, because it's God's design for the older to disciple the younger. And in this case, that, that was certainly seems to be what's happening here is that, you know, um, as with any king, they would bring in the younger rulers with them, these arrogant, cocky guys that would give them bad counsel, and before you know, they reject the, you see that all through the Old Testament, and they always make stupid decisions. We need the wisdom of mature believers. We need the wisdom of, of older people, you know, pouring into younger people, and younger people, you're not off the hook. You also have a responsibility to seek that out in your life, right? You can't disciple somebody that doesn't want to be discipled. So there, there's a disconnect in the, in the sense of, you know, maybe, there's, maybe there's, there, there just needs to be sort of a gateway where people say, hey, I'm willing to be discipled, and somebody's saying, hey, I'm willing to disciple. Listen, you can learn a lot. You can avoid a lot of hardship in your life if you will listen to mature believers because they've made mistakes, they, you know, and, and the Lord can teach you through that. What do you think the entire Bible is it, these are real live accounts. These aren't stories that are made up. These are real life people's accounts that God is teaching us through. You can learn a ton by watching other people and hearing their stories and listening to how the Lord works in their life. And so I would encourage you as a young person to, to, to just pray to God and ask him for, to bring you an older person that can pour into your life, that can help mentor you, and, and grow you up into the person that God's calling you to be. You will be far ahead in your life if you will do that. Daniel goes on here, and, and he, he tells Belshazzar, I don't care about your money. I don't care about any of this stuff. Let's, but, but I will tell you what, ha, what, what the interpretation of this is. Look at verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. 
Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. <laughs> that very night, Belshazzar, the Chal Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So here, the interpretation of the writing on the wall is obviously not favorable to Belshazzar. Notice the language. God has numbered the days of your kingdom. He's numbered the days. And in fact, you could number them down to the seconds, actually, because you're not going to be lasting very much longer, but I'm just letting you know what's going to happen. Your days are numbered. And, and what's going to happen is there's going to be a severing and a dividing of the kingdom of Babylon from your very hands to the Medes and Persians who are right outside the, right outside the door there, right outside the um, wall, the city walls. The Lord, you know, is giving this into their hands. And here's what I see. God is 100% in control here. In fact, he told Nebuchadnezzar, he, he said it over and over again, I'm the most high, and I will give the king kingdom to whoever I want, to whoever I desire. God is the author of all authority. And he puts all authority and power. He allows, you know, Babylonian kings to rule in places. He allows, you know, presidents to be presidents. He allows all authority to exist. He is the author of authority. And he's working through all authority to orchestrate his plan and purpose. And so that's why we don't rebel against authority because authority is from God. And the only time that we would, we would rebel against the authority is when, the Bible, when it's against what the Bible tells us, you know, against what the Word of God says. If, if, if you were told, you know, hey, you can't, you know, you can't worship God, then obviously you don't bow to that authority that no longer has authority over your life because God is ultimate authority over your life. And so, you know, we want, we want to honor the Lord in these things. But, um, you know, in this culture, in this day and age, man, you see the authority just being ripped away from the very people that God has put into place. I, I, it saddens me deeply to see what's happening with the authority of police officers and all of that kind of stuff. They, listen, there are bad policemen. There are bad all kinds of people. There's bad pastors. Does that mean you don't go to church? Let's just defund church. Let's just, just not do church no more because they're bad pastors that take advantage of people, that do things. It saddens me greatly to see the, you know, this is, this is a, a full-on front of the enemy to strip away the authority because authority is from God. You know, and, and, but, but here's the reality is, and this is ultimately what I want to get to, do you not see the writing on the wall, folks? Do you not see the writing on the wall? The, the writing has been on the wall, and the, the, the writing now is literally as the Lord's hand comes out and pops his hand into the sky, and he says, I'm coming soon. I hope you know that your days are numbered. I hope you know that, that just because everybody has said they've been saying that for not just hundreds of years, by the way, but thousands of years that Jesus is coming back, that doesn't make it any less effective or any less true. The reality is that he's coming back soon. The writing has been on the wall from the day that Jesus ascended into heaven. The writing has been on the wall. I am coming soon. Coming soon. Not hundreds of years, thousands of years. And in fact, and, and we've seen the prophetic word of God come into, come into pass very many, many scriptures that were necessary in order for Christ to come back. But listen, there are no more. Perhaps the only thing that needs to happen at this point in time is the last Gentile coming, the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and then Jesus comes. How, when will that be? Who knows? Perhaps it'll be in this very next breath. The last Gentile gives his life over to Christ, and then, then that age of grace closes, and now comes the age of wrath. For seven years, this, this period of judgment on the earth. The writing's on the wall, folks. Um, not just because the United States is in turmoil and chaos. Not, that's, you know, so oftentimes we look at the Bible as it's American. It's not. It's global. Look at the global world today. The, 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 the world is literally, and I'm not doomsday, you know, God's in control. He knows what he's doing, but the writing's on the wall. We need to be ready. We need to be ready for the Lord to come back. 
We, we, we look around today. We see Matthew 24 present in our world today like never before. You know, we, we read about 2 Timothy 3. We read about the, the attitude and, and the way that people will live their lives in the last days. And do you not see that? I mean, it's insane, these things. How long do you think the Lord's going to contend with the pride of man parading through the streets proclaiming pure evil before our holy God? He humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He humbled Belshazzar. He will humble America. He will humble us. You know, you look in Genesis chapter 6 when God flooded the earth because of the debauchery of man. And, 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 you, and you look at Genesis chapter 11 when God confused the language of people because they band together to build a temple to defy God. God will not contend with man forever. He will not contend with man forever. Our days are numbered. The writing's on the wall. And you can deny that, but that's not going to stop it from happening. It's not going to stop it from happening, folks. If you're an unbeliever, today you should come to Christ. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You don't, I don't care how old you are. Babies die. People live till they're 95. We're not in control of that. The Lord has a, has a life set out before you. If you don't know the Lord today, you need to come to know the Lord that, is, that should be your response to a message like this is, Lord, I need to humble myself and give my heart over to you. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, man. Listen, Jesus Christ paid the price for you. He took this, your sin on the cross. He, 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 he bore your sin. He drunk, drank the cup of wrath for you on your behalf so that you could be made right with God. What is your requirement? It's called, you know, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's a turning away from your sin and turning your life over to God. There is a worldly sorrow that does not lead to repentance, but there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You know, we shouldn't be sorry because we got caught. We should be sorry because we offended a holy God. That should be the heart. That's the heart of sincerity that would cry out, God, will you save me? To me, the words are, are really far less important than the heart. God looks at the heart. He looks at the attitude. He's not looking at how eloquently you give your life to the Lord. Let me tell you something. I gave my heart to Jesus as an unbeliever in the middle of, my, middle of the night in my bedroom. No church service, no pastor. Uh, never really even gone to church too much. So I went, you know, I, I knew the gospel though. And I acted upon the gospel and I just said, Jesus, I know you're real. I know you died for my sins. I gave my heart over to you. I want to live for you. My life changed. My, my life drastically changed. That's what it looks like to be saved. Listen, if you're not, if your life has never been transformed, you have to ask yourself, are you genuinely in right relationship with God? And it doesn't have to be a, you know, you don't have to be a, a, a staunch, hardcore crook one day and the next day you wake up with a halo on your head. You know, that, that, that's, not, that's not what I'm talking about. You could be a believer. You could be a person that's raised in a Christian home and you're a good person. You're morally good. You do all the right things, but yet you don't have that relationship with God. And when that relationship comes, there will be a passion that comes with it. And that passion for God, that hungering and thirsting to know the Lord, that's what you look for. If you're not a believer today, today is the day you need to call upon the name of the Lord. If you're an unfaithful believer, if you're somebody who's walking with the Lord, has a relationship with the Lord, but you are not in right relationship with God today, you need to repent and return to your first love. And listen, stop investing in temporal things. Stop giving yourself false sense of security in the things of this world because these things are, will fail you at some point. And, and when you stand before the Lord and he says, what'd you do with my my son, and you, and you tell him, he goes, oh, man, you had such a great opportunity. You had such a great opportunity to do so much more. I don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that person. You want to live for the Lord today. If you're a believer, live for the Lord today. Time is so short, folks, and the Lord is calling you into service. You need to be in, ready in season and out of season. God has planted you where you are for his purpose, and he knows what he's doing. Finally, if you're being faithful to the Lord right now, continue, stay the course. Continue to press on and press into God. And listen, don't let the things that are going on around the world phase you. It's all, the Lord's in control. He's, this is all part of the plan in order for him to do what he's gonna do. You know, and so we trust the Lord. We don't walk in fear. 
We, we continue, we stay the course, we share the gospel, we live the gospel out, we disciple people, we tell people about Jesus. What will change this world is by the church doing what it's supposed to do, going into the world and telling people about Jesus. That's what's gonna make a difference. The investment that you make in people's lives is what will make a difference on where we go directionally as, as an entire nation, folks. You have that control. God has given you that authority. He told the disciples he's given you the kingdom of, uh, the keys of the kingdom, and those keys of the kingdom transfer to you when you become a believer. You have the keys to the kingdom. You have the words of life. You have Jesus Christ. You have everything you need for life and godliness. So live that way. Stay the course. Be faithful. I want to tell you, I just want to leave with uh, these last words, the, the rapture quickly approaching, and when that happens, man, all hell is going to break loose on earth. And in fact, Jesus says it's going to be so severe. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21 through 22, he says this, for then there will be great tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Listen, it's time to rise up, church. Time is short. The rapture's coming. When? We don't know. We don't know the day or the hour, but we, we can look around. We can see the season, and we can see what's happening. We need to, we need to just be, be all about the Lord right now and, uh, and let him do what he's going to do. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and um, thank you so much for this account in Daniel chapter 5 where we consider the writing on the wall. Lord, it is uh, incredibly humbling to see the false security that not only these Babylonians had behind walls that would crumble, behind possessions that would eventually fade away. Lord, behind, you know, supplies that would eventually run out. And Lord, I can't help but to think about my own life and the things that I find security in outside of you that will fail me. And Lord, I just want to confess that to you this morning, Lord. Lord, we are sorry as a people of making something else besides you our security. A doctor, a job, whatever it is. Lord, we confess that to you today. We want you to reign as Lord and King of our lives. You sent your son to die for us so that we could be set free from the things of this world so we could walk in freedom and victory not so that we could aimlessly pursue things that don't matter in the scheme of eternity and so we just ask you Lord do the work in every single person's heart here today listening online watching our YouTube or our Facebook channel right now Lord you're calling people into relationship with you right now. And if that's you, you need to answer his call upon you. You simply call upon his name. Lord, I've, I'm calling on your name this morning, Jesus. Confessing my sin to you that I have lived in ways that are not right before you, God. Will you forgive me? Turn away from all those things that are debaucherous before you, Lord. I'm turning to you. Cleanse me, Lord. Forgive me. I receive Jesus as my Lord, as my Savior. I believe he died for me. He rose again from the dead for me. I give my heart to Jesus now, Lord in all sincerity. Lord, it's a prayer like that that transforms a life for all of eternity. 
So will you do the work that needs to be done in each one of our hearts? Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to flood the hearts of your believers today. God, that we wouldn't sit back in fear and watch the world unravel, Lord, but we would engage like never before and run the streets with a boldness and confidence of Jesus Christ. Lord, declaring the truth, there is only one way. His name is Jesus. He is the only way that we can be made right with God. We pray for our time of communion now, Lord. What a great time of celebration of recognizing what Jesus has done for us. That he died and he rose again from the dead. And what we do here today is we take that bread and we recognize it as the body of Christ that was broken for us. It is sinless and perfect and yet he was broken for us. And we partake of the bread that represents the body. Thanking Jesus for the sacrifice thanking him for his perfection and how that translates into our lives, that although we are broken, we can be made well because Jesus was perfect. And we partake of that cup representing the blood of Christ that was shed for our sin, that, we, that makes atonement for us, that washes us white as snow. And we rejoice in the cup that we partake of this, this morning thanking Jesus for drinking the cup of wrath on our behalf. So will you just continue to move in this service, Lord, for these last few moments. Draw our hearts to yourself, God. As we partake of communion, may you be a sweet time just between you and us, Lord, of just remembering what you've done. We thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.